Here's what it says, 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is at hand. Ooh, that's a good way to start a service, right? All right, and then he says, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever Amen. Well, that's the passage that we're going to look at here today. And before we jump into the message, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that we would be challenged and encouraged. And Lord, that we would grow here today as we study your word and we talk about what it is that we see here in your word. And I pray that you would give me, as it says there, uh, the words to speak as if I was an oracle of you, Lord, that you would, would speak through me to your people and that you would give us all ears to hear the things that you desire to speak today. We thank you for this day and thank you for this opportunity. And it is in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we start out here with the end of all things is at hand. Now, the, the very first phrase that we see here this, this phrase about the end of all things is an important one that, that shapes um, really a great deal of the theology of the New Testament. So if you ever wondered what the disciples of Jesus, those who had been following Jesus, what they felt and what they thought after Jesus left, I think that um, we can see it over and over in the New Testament that they believed that Jesus' return was soon, was imminent. I will say this too, as the sun is now coming out for the first time this morning, for those of you who love the sun, rejoice. For those of you who don't, there's a little section of shade right here and a little section of shade right there. Feel free to hop up and move your chairs over there if you want to get toward shade, okay? So I won't be offended and well, I'll do it now and so nobody else will be either, all right? The end of all things was imminent to the people of the New Testament. They believed that Jesus, as he had gone in their lifetimes, they believed that he was going to come back in their lifetimes. And we just read Peter there who said that, but then it, it happens in other places in the New Testament. John, also an apostle, he said in 1 John 2.18, children, it's the last hour. As you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. He didn't literally mean 50 minutes from now. He's writing a letter to somebody, but he means right now, very soon. It's, it's, we're at the end. James, the, the brother of Jesus and the leader of the early church in Jerusalem, James 5.8, he writes this, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Paul in 1 Corinthians 7.29, the appointed time has grown very short. These guys all believed that Jesus was coming back and he was coming back soon. Now, when you, you go into the book of Acts, which was after Jesus had died and rose again, the book of Acts, which is the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles, the birth of the church, what we find there in Acts chapter one is Jesus's ascension into heaven. 
And Jesus had, had told his disciples to, to gather together and wait. He appeared to them. He began talking to them. And then it, it tells us there in Acts chapter 1 that he literally started going up into heaven, right in front of their eyes. And they watched him physically going up into the sky. And as you can imagine, that was a really shocking event. So they're all standing here, staring up into the sky. And they're wondering, okay, what now? Like, I can't see him anymore. He's up there. Is he, is he literally just floating up into the sky to, to give the father a high five and then come right back? Like, is he, what, we don't know what to do. <laughs> so they're standing there looking into the sky. Jesus is gone. Two angels show up and say, why are you looking into the sky? The same way that Jesus went is the same way he's gonna return. But they didn't say when. They didn't say, yeah, keep staring, guys, because here he's coming back. They didn't say, don't worry, three weeks from now, six months from now, 10 years from now. They didn't say anything. They just said the same way that he went is the same way he's going to return. Now, the disciples correctly knew that Jesus' life and death and resurrection and ascension had completed all of the requirements for his second return, for the second coming. He, they, that Jesus had done everything that needed to be done. So it made sense that they thought, well, everything's taken care of now. Maybe he'll be back very soon. And they trusted what Jesus had said when he told them. You know, um, if you remember in the gospel where he talks about heaven, he says, I'm gonna go and prepare a place for you. And if I go to that place, know this, I'm coming back for you. Jesus clearly told them, I'm going to return. I'm going to come back. I'm going to get you. And so they just assumed that it would happen in their lifetimes. Nowhere did Jesus ever say, I'm going to go and be gone for a little while and I'll be back before you're gone. He didn't say that. But at the same time, these disciples who knew that Jesus had done everything and that he could come back at any time, those same disciples knew that God's timetable is unknown to humans and that we have to be patient and be ready. Peter, who wrote that, that first phrase that we looked at, the end of all things is at hand, also wrote in his second letter, in 2 Peter 3, he said, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment the Lord and Savior of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing that first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. And what are they going to scoff about? Well, they're going to be following their own sinful desires. And it says, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. But he goes on there in verse 8 and says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years as one day. The Lord's not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Peter knew we, when in our, we're caught in this time-space continuum and things seem different to us than they seem to God. God's outside of time and space. He's not attached to our agendas and our schedules and our timetables. He put this world in place with all of its order and all of its structures and its climate and its, uh, its, the way it spins and the way it operates orbiting around the sun and all these things. That's all in his control. 
but he operates outside of that. And so for us to figure out, well, how is God going to do this? Is it short? Is it long? He, he tells us, no, he knows what he's doing. He's outside of all that. Now, I think, and this is just my own personal speculation, I think that the, the early believers would be stunned to know that here we are 2,000 years later and the earth is still spinning <laughs> and life is still going on. I think that would have blown their minds if you could have gone back and told them. But... I don't know that they would have lived or taught much differently than they did. We would still, as Peter tells us here in this verse, still need to be self-controlled and sober-minded. They would probably have uh, taught a little more about uh, endurance and settling into the places that God has us, but that wouldn't negate the importance of still being ready for Jesus' return. Jesus himself, if you ever wondered, you know, what did Jesus say about end times or the end of the world and how this is all going to happen? You can find that in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. There's several things that Jesus discusses and alludes to in that section. Um, but some of the things that he taught us were simply to stay alert and be prepared. There in Matthew 24 and 25, one of the, the stories that that. Jesus talks about the parables and the way that he describes the coming of, of, the, of himself on the second coming and the end of, the, of all things. He said, it's gonna come like a thief in the night. You're not really gonna know when it's gonna happen because if you knew, you'd be set up for it, right? If I told you today, hey, I found out some, some secret info that somebody, a thief is coming and they're gonna steal your car out of your driveway tonight at 11.30, You'd, you'd probably have something waiting for them at 11.30, right? Unless you were done with that car and ready to get rid of it and had good insurance, right? You, you would know that that's happening and you would be prepared for it and you'd figure stuff out to whatever, call the police or something. That's what he said though. He said, you're not gonna know. You're not gonna have this information. It's gonna just sneak up on you and boom, the end of all things is gonna take place. But what he also says there in that passage of scripture is he, he, he describes it another way. He says, and I want you to be, he, he describes it like these women that are waiting for a surprise party for a wedding that's gonna happen. And it's probably gonna happen in the middle of the night because that was one of the traditions that happened in a lot of the Jewish cultures there where the bridal party would all be together. They'd all have this big sleepover hanging out in the same place. And then the groom would come with all the groomsmen and they would come and bring the whole wedding party to this middle of the night party. But it would stretch out over a few days so you wouldn't know when that was. So what he was talking about is he says, you need to be like those women that are prepared, meaning they have their lamps and their lamps are full of oil so that they can light that lamp up and head across town to where the party is gonna be at any moment in the middle of the night. He says, be prepared, be ready. So we don't know when Jesus will return, but we do know that he will. I don't know if I'll see, you know, live long enough to see him return on the clouds, but I believe he will. Some pastors and ministries lean very heavily on the immediate return and, and others, by ignoring that, are kind of leaning on the delayed return, right? You, you may have heard messages like that, um, Scaring people into heaven is an extremely popular and admittedly effective way of sharing the gospel. And you'll hear pastors that say, are you ready? Because we don't know when. It could be now. 
See that cloud over there? That cloud looks a little different. Could be right now. Are you ready? Is your heart ready? Are you prepared? Have you repented of your sins? Because you never know. Twinkling of an eye. It's gonna happen, it's gonna happen fast. And that's when people start, their hearts start beating a little faster and like, ooh, what if that happened? It is effective. And there's a, tr- there's a truth to that because we don't know when the time is. But we also know that the problem with that is it, it kind of ignores the long-term disciple a- aspect of things, discipleship. And, and what happens is new converts kind of flare up and burn out because they freak out and they get their life squared away and they live that way for a week. And then they come back next week and they hear the message again. You don't, you don't know, it could be this afternoon. Oh, wait a minute, I heard that last week. I'm not so sure. Well, six months later, two years later, five years later, they're like, forget that, I heard that story. That's not, not where we need to be. So here's the, here's the hard part. So you see this and you say, well, then how are we supposed to live? Because we're supposed to be aware, we're supposed to live as if he could return at any moment but also live as if he might might not come for another 2,000 years. So is there a way to live that covers both options? I think there is. And it's a prerequisite to live how Peter is calling us to live in this passage. Okay? Now, stick with me. When we read a practical section of the Bible, like we read this morning, and you start seeing this list of things to do, we tend to want to make a list and start checking off the boxes. Some of you are list people, and that is how you live life. When you've got something to do, ooh, I get to put this on my list. And then I like to check it off. And some people like pen and ink or pencil or whatever it is or a highlighter or something, and physically you want to do it. And so you look at this passage, and you're like, all right, I need to be self-controlled. I need to be sober-minded. I need to love others. I need to show hospitality, and I need to use my gifts in service. That's what I see in this passage. So there's those five things. If I can check those things off, I'm good. Now, we might succeed uh, in that for a while. And if we all knew that I could tell you without a shadow of a doubt, Jesus comes back tomorrow at 3.32 p.m. If I could tell you that and tell you, here's the five things you need to do, guess what? I bet most of us here could be like, I can do that. 24 hours or less, you know, I can do this. I can do those things. I'll check those things off. I'll be good to go and ready for Jesus to come back. But could you do that for the rest of your life based on just willpower, sheer willpower? Well, I don't think that that God even wants you to try that. (laughs) And Peter didn't expect you to either. And the key to all this is found in the last verse that we read this morning in verse 11. And we're gonna keep working through, but I want you to jump ahead and see that verse 11 because he gives us some insight into it. Because what he says there is this little phrase that says, I want you to do all these things by the strength that God supplies. That's important. The, the, the changing of our behaviors, the living life apart from sin, the doing, as, as James was talking about this morning, of, of not going back to the old life, but living into this new life is all tied up right there. It comes from being in the strength that God supplies. Because as you go through the scripture and you start learning more about this, you realize that God calls us to a lot of difficult things. He calls us to a narrow path that leads to righteousness. He calls us to be holy like he's holy. That's, that's difficult things. There's more than that. But he never expects us to do it alone. 
Throughout the scripture, over and over, we hear God speak to his people and says, to say, I will never leave you or forsake you. At the very end of the, the uh, Great Commission, when Jesus sends out his disciples and says, go out into all the earth and make disciples, the last phrase that he says is, I am with you always to the end of the age. I'll be here. I'll be here with you. I'll empower you. I'll strengthen you. I'll walk with you. I'm here for you in this. The stuff that I'm calling you to that seems like, oh my gosh, that seems hard. I don't know if I can live that way. That seems like so much effort and energy and it takes sacrifice and it's gonna take a lot out of me. God says, I'm gonna be here with you through it all. So the way we live a life that is prepared, self-controlled and sober-minded as he describes it, a life that's prepared for his immediate return and or his future return is with a daily walk with God. A daily walk with God. Many people are trying to live a spirit-filled life with only a weekly or monthly walk with God. Now, I'm not talking about just church attendance, guys. I'm not telling you, okay, we have to do this every day. We need to be back here setting up a church service every day all the time because then that's our walk with God. That's not what I'm referring to. What I'm talking about is the way that they're connecting with and communing with God in their life every single day. All right? Now, I'm talking also specifically about the distance in their relationship with God because every relationship has distance in it. Okay? Some amount of distance. Even in our vocabulary, that's how we describe a relationship with somebody. You know, with our closest family or friends, we'll say, I'm very close to that person. Or if it's somebody that we, you know, maybe we, as an old friend of ours that we haven't kept in touch with or whatever, like, yeah, we used to be close. Now, we're not talking about geography. We're not saying, yeah, I stand here and they stand here, so I'm close to them. We're talking about relationally, right? There's a, there's a distance in every relationship. And a person that can hold this tension of Jesus could come back today, or he might not come back for my whole life, that a person that can hold that tension in place is a person that is regularly in the presence of God. They're close to God. They have a relationship with God where they're talking to him, he's talking to them, and there's this communion that happens. Because what's happening is you're prepared. I know this God. I'm close to him, he's close to me. If he comes back today, great. If he doesn't come back for another six months, six years, 60 years, great. We're still close. We're still prepared. We're still ready. They're in constant contact with him. That person knows the heart and mind of God the best and they hear his voice and can follow his lead. Now, as we talked about last week, sin causes distance in our relationship. It pushes us further and further from a holy God. That's what sin does, all right? And what I found is that usually my proximity to God, my closeness to God has a direct impact on my distance from sin, okay? That might sound like a math problem to you, but um, let me explain it. When I'm closer to God, I find that I'm usually further from sin. It's just how it works, now, I will say there's exceptions to that and that goes into spiritual warfare because there's also been times where I feel like I've been closest that I've ever been to God that all of a sudden I turn the corner and boom, here's sin hitting me. But that's a, different, that's a different thing. And the opposite is obviously true as well. The further I am from God, 
the closer I seem to be to sin. That's how it works. There's a distance that happens in that way. And if you want to grow to the place of spiritual maturity, listen, you must have a daily walk with God. That may seem harsh or a little firm, but it's true. If you want to be in a place of spiritual maturity, you must have a daily walk with God. What am I talking about when I even say that, walk with God? That's such a Christian phrase. What does that, what's that even mean? Well, what I'm not talking about is the way it was for Adam and Eve before the fall. Adam and Eve had it great. The first people on earth in Eden. And one of the things that we see actually in, in uh, Genesis chapter two, um, well, actually by the, by the time the fall actually takes place is God comes walking through the garden, literally walking through the garden and they hear him and they realize, okay, we've sinned. We got to hide ourselves because God's here for our, our afternoon walk together. That's not what I'm referring to. We don't have that opportunity uh, right now. That's not what is being described in this. When he says, you know, you, you, our walk with God is something that is a daily interaction that we have with our Savior. A daily opportunity to be able to talk to him. How do we do those things? How do we walk with God? How do we have this? Well, there's, there's lots of different things. Lots of those things that you already know. Things like prayer. Your prayer life is a spot where you're in communication with him. The way that we dig into the word. Right now, we're actually exercising walking with God. Why? Because we're studying the scripture that tells us who God is and, and what God's nature is like. All right? Another way that we interact with God and we walk with God is simply by having uh, connections and fellowship with other believers. Because I learn a lot of things about God in my relationship with you. As you're expressing to me what God's doing in your life and how you're growing and how you're living, that impacts me as well. That's where we're, we're constantly in this space. So when I say you need to have a walk with God in order to be all that he's calling you to be and do all that he's calling to you to do, it's, there's, there's little practical things that are happening where there's an awareness in your mind that opens you up. So what are some of these things that then as we're walking with God, what are some of these things that begin coming out or overflowing our hearts and lives as we're walking with God? Because that's what he's describing here. Some of the things that you see that are commands or descriptions in scripture that come toward you, they feel like they're so hard to pull off. How am I gonna live life like God's called me to live? It's such a high standard. How can I ever get there? How can I be there? What I'm telling you is, is as you're walking with God and as God is growing you and changing you, some of these things begin to flow out naturally as you are in relationship with him. Here's in verse eight, one of the things that he tells us that we need to do. The first thing, and, and I'm gonna tell you, there's, there's gonna be three, three things that, Peter's going to call us to that are an outflow of our walk with God. Okay. Number one is that we're going to be, we're going to have overflowing love. All right. Number two is that we're going to have joyful hospitality. And number three, powerful service. All right. So th those are these things that we're going to be able to do as we're walking with God. And as these things begin to flow out. So in verse eight, that's what he says. He says, above all, 
Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. The first thing that we're going to be able to do as we're walking with God is we're going to find that we begin overflowing in love because of the way we've been loved. In Luke chapter 7, there's a story where Jesus is invited over to a Pharisee's house, a Pharisee by the name of Simon. And as he goes over to this house for a meal, he comes to to Simon's house and they're sitting there and they begin eating. A woman comes in the door with this alabaster flask of oil, of this precious, costly oil. And this woman comes in and you may know the story. She pours out this oil on Jesus's feet and she is, she's in tears and she's wiping his feet with her hair. And, but here's the thing, you see it. And as you read the story, you're like, oh no, what's, what's wrong? What's happening? She's in tears. But what you find out is she's over, she's overflowing with joy. She's overjoyed because Jesus has forgiven her sins. And as an act of worship, she comes to Jesus and she's just pouring out everything that she's got, overflowing with this love for him. She's pouring it out onto his feet. And in that passage of scripture, what Jesus says there in Luke chapter 7, verse 40, is he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Because what we also find out about this woman is she's a a sinner, okay? Most likely she was a prostitute. Doesn't tell us that, but that's most likely what was happening. And and Simon is a little confused. He's like, man, Jesus, do you know who this woman is who's pouring this stuff on your feet? This doesn't seem like something that a godly guy should be hanging out with, you know? And here's what he says. He says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. And he describes this parable. He says, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, that's an amount of money, and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one will love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. One, he owed 500, one owed 50, he canceled the debt of both, probably the one who got his 500 canceled. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then he goes on, he says in verse 47, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. One of the things that we find as we're walking with God every day, is we recognize more and more how much sin we've been forgiven for. We start recognizing our need for a savior more and more. And as we understand the weight of our sins more and more, what happens is we start loving Jesus more and more because we realize, oh my goodness, I had the weight of the world of all these sins on me. I couldn't deal with these sins, but Jesus took care of them for me. Lord, I love you. Thank you for doing that and for freeing me from these sins. And as we do that, as we start growing in love for him, we start growing in love for everybody else. And that's how love begins to overflow out of our hearts. If you've known anyone who's walked the Lord for a long time, that really knows the Lord, typically, and as it should be, one of the characteristics of that person is they're they're an overflowing love kind of person. They're full of love because they have received a great deal of love and now they pour out a great deal of love. And he tells us there that we need to keep doing that. He says, keep loving one another. And the reason we have to remind ourselves to keep loving one another is because there will be times where we want to quit. There will be times we don't want to love, especially when we've been sinned against by somebody that should be loving us. Okay, and and you find that in, in church. 
as sadly as that would be. You, you find it um, in, in the people that, that should also be the people that are full of love. And I just want to say, you know, there may be many things that, that we don't do well as a church in the life of our church, because that's, we're made up of a bunch of imperfect people. Uh, you know that, you know this. Um, but may we always be a church that is earnestly loving one another. All right, if we don't get anything else right, let's at least love each other and continue to pour out love um, on one another. Now, the next thing that we see here is this joyful hospitality. Verse nine says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. A daily walk with God results in joyful hospitality. What's hospitality? Hospitality is the loving and generous way that we receive each other and guests. Okay? That's how it is. And when we recognize that Jesus has welcomed us into relationship with him while we're still sinners, we begin to grow in our desire to welcome other people in. When you understand the gospel message that, that a savior died for you to give you eternal life, you begin to understand this is important. This matters. This isn't just like the tradition I grew up in and I went to church because my parents went to church. And so I, you know, why would I invite people into that? It's kind of a weird club of all kinds of people. Like, I don't even know that I want to invite people into this. But when you start recognizing, no, 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 this is actually what gives me life and has changed my life, now we begin to see that hospitality grow because we're like, we want to welcome others in. We want to bring people into this. And that is what comes naturally out of that walk with God, this joyful hospitality. We have here at our church a hospitality team. Jeff over there is manning a, a welcome table, all right? His job today is to welcome you as you come in. For those of you who have been here lots of times or those of you who have hardly been here at all, he wants to welcome you in to make people feel comfortable. Life group hosts, it's the same thing. You open up your home and invite people in to talk about God and to have fellowship together. It's a vital part of the church that expresses the love of Jesus. So why would he say then, if you're gonna show hospitality to other, do it without grumbling? What's that all about? Why would we grumble? I'll tell you three reasons why. Number one, it costs us. Showing hospitality to other people costs us. First off, like for instance here, being part of a hospitality team. Well, that just means you have to show up before church starts, before everybody else gets here, right? Because you want to be here to welcome them. If you come up, you come late, then you're not going to be able to welcome them. So you got to be early. Sometimes, even if, you know, Jeff probably not, but other people maybe that work that table, they may not wake up with a smile on, them, on their face wanting to welcome other, other people to be friendly when they don't feel like being friendly, when the, to be warm and cheerful when they don't feel warm and cheerful. It costs us. Secondly, it's also uncertain. Hospitality is hard this way because what happens if I make this effort I get here early, I love these people, I care for them and I pour out to them and I try to make conversation, make them feel comfortable and then they just don't come back. Well, it's uncertain. Was that a waste of your energy, a waste of your resources? No. And when you're overflowing with love, hey man, they were loved here for the day. (laughs) Great. We did what we needed to do. Another reason that we grumble sometimes is because it's uncomfortable. Hospitality is often uncomfortable especially when you're, you're dealing with people that aren't just like you, people that are different than you. 
And, and as a church, what are we called to? We're called to be hospitable to people with different views, different political views, different understandings of the world around us, different backgrounds. Guys, the, the church has always been a place of diversity before diversity was popular. The church is all people from all races, all walks of life, all backgrounds. We're, we're called to be together and to be hospitable in that way is sometimes difficult. But as we walk with God and we recognize he's welcomed us, we automatically want to welcome others. And, and don't we want to our church to experience healthy growth? Do you want that for your church? I do. I absolutely do. Well, where's that going to come from? Well, it's going to come from babies, <laughs> all right? But not all of us can continue to have more children within the church and grow that way. Okay, which is a wonderful, valid way. You feel free to continue to do that if that's where, where you're at in life. But no, where, where's the growth going to come from? New people. New people. Guess what? Great sermons don't grow churches. But a church that's loving and hospitable, a community of Christians, it will. All right, now the last verse here as we go on. Verse 10, he says, And as each has received a gift, use it to speak to use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The last point here today is that a daily walk with God results in powerful service. When you're walking with God, God's gonna empower you to do works that he set, up, set before you, before you were even born. He's gonna give you opportunities to serve and you're gonna develop his heart for service. It's one of the ways that God influences us by giving us his heart for service. Jesus himself in describing what he was doing on earth, he said in Mark 10, 45, he said, for even the son of man, me, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A mature Christian is a Christian who serves. It's what we do. That's what a mature Christian does, period. Now, that doesn't mean you have to wait until you're mature to serve. No. In fact, sometimes our spiritual gifts aren't even evident to us. When he talks about these different gifts that you have, sometimes it's as you step out into service and lean into service that those things become evident to you. And it may not even become evident to you. Other people might see it in you. I might meet you and realize you have such a warm, loving, caring personality that I might say, you should serve at the hospitality table because you're made for this. And it's true. And sometimes our spiritual gifts are directly equivalent to our natural gifts, but sometimes they aren't. So even if you aren't positive about your gifts, serve anyway. He just calls us to serve, to step out in that way. Now, I'm not going to uh, go into the, the speaking part today, but I, I will just uh, tell you this. Um, that's a heavy responsibility. He says there, if you're going to speak, if you're going to teach, if you're going to preach in a church, you should do it with a heavy weight of responsibility, realizing you're supposed to be speaking as an oracle for God. What's that mean? That means when I'm preparing these messages, I need to be praying and say, God, I don't want them to hear me. I want them to hear you. So please give me the words to speak. And, and I don't want to scare the rest of you who teach in Sunday school with the kids or any of that, but that's where you're at too. 
Anytime we're speaking on behalf of God or trying to share with, with others the, the goodness of God, we wanna, we wanna make sure that we're trying to give them Jesus and not give them ourselves. But you know what? It's the same way even when you share the faith with your family member or your neighbor or anybody else. When you speak, watch your words um, because God wants to speak through you. Now, the one thing I do want you to, to notice here is that he says there at the end, and we already talked about it before earlier in verse 11, but where he talks about doing this service, serving by the strength that God supplies. It's, it, it, the fuel for all the service of our church, all the ministry that we do, all the way that we love each other, all the way that we serve each other, all the way that we're hospitable, all those things, the fuel for all of that is the same source. It's God, that we would serve the church family by God's strength, not our own. And as we walk with him, God works in, with, and through us. And God can use every one of us to serve powerfully, powerful service in his church. Why? Because he's the one providing the power. He's the one doing it. A church requires people to serve. It requires a service like this. Um, it requires servants. And we need healthy servants. We're called to be healthy servants. And if we rely on our own strength, even the most resilient among us will wear out quickly or get bitter. But notice that even there, even as we do serve and we step out in those ways, God gets the glory. So be a good steward of God's grace and serve one another. And I will say this also, notice and remember as we, as we conclude here, we don't start with powerful service. We don't start with joyful hospitality. We don't start with overflowing love. We start with a daily walk with God. If some of those things feel like they're so far out there that oh, I can never do that, that's not me, that's not my thing. Don't worry about that part. Worry about the walking with God part and let him grow you and develop you in the way that he's calling you to. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, I do thank you for this day. I thank you for the opportunity that we have to hear your word and to be together here this morning. And Lord, we are always challenged by the things that you call us to in your word. And sometimes it seems very simple and sometimes it seems really hard and when we think about these things that you're calling us to here today I just pray God that that we would be reminded by the fact that you're the one that will strengthen us and you're the one that will provide what we need to do the things that we're called to we are we are grateful Lord that our salvation does not hinge on our works or the things that we do the things that we're called to it's just an overflow from a relationship that you're calling us to have with you. Today, if, if, if we are here and, and we are believing in you for salvation, if we've yielded our lives to you to become the Lord of our life, we're, we're saved. It's finished. It's done. But you also save us, not to just leave us here to wait till you return, but you also save us to allow us to join you in the work that you're doing here on earth. And that's why you give us these different opportunities and these different tasks and these different 
things um, that we can be a part of, these works that we can be a part of. It's not to save us, but it's uh, to allow us to experience the joy of serving you and walking with you and loving other people. So Lord, I pray that you would help us grow in these areas. I pray that we would be people of overflowing love, people that recognize the great love that you've poured out on us, that we could pour that love out on others. I pray that we would be people that are joyfully hospitable, that we would welcome all those that would come and that people would know us to be a hospitable church. And that, Lord, that we would step into powerful service in the ways that you're calling us to serve. If there are any here today that are feeling that tug on their heart to to volunteer, to step into areas of service, Lord, I pray that you would stir them to do that very thing as we know we have opportunities in every aspect of the ministry here to serve. And Lord, today, as we close this service in worship and a time of corporate communion together, Lord, may we be reminded of your presence and may we begin a week of walking with you day by day by day, experiencing your presence, experiencing the joy and the love that comes from walking and spending time with you. So guide us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.